You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Trevor Bilyeu, who is the primary host of a show called Champagne Sharks, which I'm a, a pretty big fan of. Uh, right before we were talking, uh, we were saying I was telling him that this is the first episode that I've done where I'm talking to someone who I've kind of a one-sided parasocial relationship up until this moment, uh, where you know I've been listening to that show for probably a little maybe a bit over a year, something like that. And I would say it's a, a direct uh, influence on the show that I'm putting together now. So, uh, you know, it's cool to, nice to talk to him for the first time. Really good conversation. We kind of go on for a while and it's kind of a f- pretty free flowing conversation. Uh, we didn't really come in with a specific topic. So we hit a lot of different things and we kind of come back around to things in kind of circular ways we talk a lot about uh, music media. We talk about aging in and out of music. Uh, we hit comics a few times. Towards the end, we talk a lot about Eminem. Uh, so uh, it kind of goes all over the place. I think you're going to like it. Uh, if you haven't heard Champagne Sharks, I think uh, this is going to be a pretty good introduction to Trevor. And I definitely recommend checking out his show. So uh, just a reminder that this is a free episode of the show come, that come out on Wednesdays. The show episodes that come out on Saturdays are for Patreon subscribers. You want to hit up FluxBlog uh, slash Patreon. And uh, let's just get into it. This is uh, Trevor. Uh, Trevor, can you uh, introduce yourself to the audience, like who you are and what you do? Yeah, name is Trevor Bullyu. I am a lawyer and a podcaster based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, podcast is called Champagne Sharks, mostly about race and and politics and pop culture. I think it's the best way. I think it's the best way to put it. And Yeah, that's pretty succinct. I yeah. mean, it covers a pretty wide range of things. And, you know, this look as a listener, there's kind of a, a pleasure of not knowing exactly what the next episode is going to be. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a lot of it is kind of veered into what I almost call uh, sociology. Uh, but you know, you were saying about a one a one way parasocial relationship. But I used to read your blog back in the day, up until um, not too long ago. I used to read Flux Flux blog. It used to be my RSS reader and the whole nine. Oh, there we go. So I guess we're, we're on a little bit more even ground than I thought. Yeah, again, yeah. That, the, that the yeah. I mean, I, I've been doing it for a long time, but it's like, and I, I know the like, I'll get that like here and there with people is like. People fall off, and I think like I think it kind of exactly where what you're saying with the Google Reader and things like that. Once the RSS readers, that's where a lot of people kind of, you know, understandably kind of disappeared because I wasn't really putting things into feeds. It was just kind of like a site that you went to. You know, I've actually been more recently trying to kind of address different ways of giving it to people, but for a long time, I, this wasn't a concern at all. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I rediscovered you as the quiz guy so i never made the connection that you ran um flux blog until you um mentioned it so yeah i uh so it's like i discovered you uh twice because you if i remember correctly wrote that uh with the buzzfeed thing you talked about the girl who uh was in college basically doing it for swag bags Ah, we, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, uh, yeah, that, so that's like around the time I was laid off from BuzzFeed. Yeah. And, like, I, I wrote a, a little thing on the site just to fill in for the audience. So just kind of explaining, oh, yeah, I'd, uh, that would have happened. And, you know, in that, 
I just mentioned sort of in passing that uh, I, I think I was just trying to explain in some way that like the, the probably the biggest reason I don't work there anymore is because uh, this they realized that the amount of traffic that they got from the user generated quizzes was so much that like why bother spending money on people you know and i think like also the amount of resources that was going into things and the amount of resources going into like making new types of quizzes which is part of my job this kind of this kind of r&d kind of side of it i was like oh no we'll just we're, we're fine with this because they were just you know chopping costs down and you know, changing priorities. So, I mean, it, so it's one of those things where like, I totally understand in this kind of like cold capitalist way where it's like, okay, I, I absolutely see where I was now redundant and a victim of my own success of, of having built this thing to be popular enough that people just want to make them themselves. Yeah. But what's interesting is we use that. Uh, I use that example for different um, stories. Cause I was talking about this idea that a lot of people now are very uh, into uh, like they view like their brands or the places where they get to work at these institutions and the idea of doing things for attention and recognition and how I've, I felt like that's a very big thing in this kind of clout economy. And I brought that up as an example. And one thing that was very interesting, a good amount of people wrote to the show to say, Hey, that's, messed up because it's all about institutions and you know it's it's based on institutions to uh treat people right and everything you're blaming uh the individual you're blaming the worker and i feel like there's a big strain in a lot of leftists because we have a lot of leftists who listen to the show that think that they think hey uh you can't blame an individual for anything anymore you can only make uh systemic and corporate uh critique but i was like no back in the day if you crossed a a picket line or you were a scab you used to get into a lot of trouble or you know like you can't expect corporations or institutions to just do the good the right thing based on their conscience that's yeah not, that's not how things work you yeah know? i mean from the perspective of that girl or like really literally like hundreds of people who were and still do make like these, you know, these quizzes on the site, like the, you know, they don't know that they're doing anything that is like, uh, basically work for free They They see it as a fun activity and a way of, uh, entertaining their friends. Um, but I think, you know, that, that one particular girl, like after, you know, it kind of came out that, that she was as, as successful as she was without really even knowing it. Um, and like good things have come to her. Like she ended up like writing a, like a, a, a quiz book and like, she's like worked for Netflix and things like that. Uh, like she's done okay. But, um, you know, she just like did not realize that what, you know, what the actual impact of all that free labor was. And, yeah. And, and I, I think, think making her, I think making her aware of it doesn't, isn't the same as attacking her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a thing though. It's like, I, I keep, I mean, I've told other people who are, uh, you know, more like, who, who do more like this straight, uh, journalism or things like that. Like you should actually be quite wary because, you know, it won't be too long before a lot of these companies start figuring out how to get like more and more of this stuff to be done for free. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just like the idea of getting, 
to work for these institutions and get to say, I do this for BuzzFeed and tell their friends that, you know, or oh, I yeah, get absolutely. to do, do this for, because now like brands are very much, corporations are very much like your friend and the status symbol. So a lot of people think, I mean, you were talking about um, comics before, and I feel like that used to be a very big thing with um, comic book companies where people had their favorite comic book companies they grew up with and being able to say, hey, I'm, I got an in at Marvel or DC, um, they could underpay you just on knowing how much it meant to you to get. Oh to yeah. Work. I mean, I that's, that's the, the whole yeah. business structure of the actual print comic side is so much of it is based around, well, you know, if you, if you, if you listen, if you're not happy with the way you're being paid there, are, there's no shortage of people who are dying to do this, you know? Yep. Yep, and, and I think that model is spreading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but yeah, exactly. So you know, and, and it's and it's a tricky thing in some ways because sometimes, like you know, the people who are fans and they kind of end up being you know whether you know whether it's this or some other things, like they end up doing really good things, and you know, it's just like you don't want to completely like toss out that impulse to want to do the thing you're a fan of. But it's the exploitation of that desire that is the big problem. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's also, like, so many people now who I think have taken that attitude. Because I remember, I'm sure you probably saw this. There was that article or anonymous thing that was one of the first things I saw to go very viral on Twitter was, uh, I wish I worked at BuzzFeed. And oh this, yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember that being like a topic in the office for a while. I worked there for like about seven years or so, like yeah. through most of like the big years of the company. Yeah, and, and I remember like uh, the way he was writing is not that different than how people write about a lot of other things. Like, like uh, you know, the people write about like working for Marvel or DC or working at, um, you know, they're. Oh yeah, I mean, there's ab- it's one of the weirdest things of like as as BuzzFeed kind of went along, especially as there was more of like the videos and all that stuff, and like all these kind of celebrities coming out of the video office, that people would just have like start making fan fiction and fan videos and like shipping like you know these people who are in the videos are like you know comp- human beings. Wow, <laughs> not really? really, not really like actual not characters, but like human beings. So. You know- I can kind of see it because I've seen that with um, even with streaming. Sometimes, like you know, you'll have people stream. You'll have multiple people, and people put in the comments, "I ship so and so in the stream," and it's like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> like, like they're not characters in something, but okay. I'm always. I think you and I are around the same age, and I think uh, there, there's all these like little things that uh, of people's relationships with fiction, particularly that I just can't relate to, like. Um, I, you know, as as a comic book reader, and I, I I definitely see it with people who are like significantly younger, where they will have like they're they're like my interest in comics really tends to be more about creators and like following creators and what they do with things and what they do on their own and you know, but I don't really have that kind of like energy around characters and wanting them to be together and like having that. I, I, it's just, that just seems so weird to me. And I know that it's not necessarily a new thing and like shipping and, and fan fiction, all that stuff goes back, you know, at least into the sixties with star Trek, but yeah, I don't relate def- to it at all. <laughs> it's definitely a shift in that 
it's the dominant mode now. But in general, fandom, I feel fandom like, is the dominant mode for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like what you're talking about, the same way, like I look at that stuff, is um, you notice now in Wikipedia, for example, in Wikipedia, when they have stuff about characters uh, from comic books and stuff, they have two sections now. They have something called publication history, and then um, I guess like in universe history or I forget what they call the second one, but the publication history, I think is how you and I tend to look at it. So the publication history will be like, um, you know, like the Chris Claremont canon of a character. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like, for example, X-Men first debuted at this year, uh, Jack Kirby and whatever did it. Then this person took over and then, you know, uh, Chris Claremont revived it, you know, whereas, um, the, the other history is like, uh, It'll treat it like a living, breathing history, and like, like for example, I'll give one example. Um, some you'll go into like a message board or something, and someone will be like, "Well, you know, uh, Captain America is a New Deal Democrat, and you know he's a liberal, <laughs> and not a." And whereas to me, I'll be like, "Okay, Captain America was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, yeah, to just and- kick ass," and then later on, somebody. Roger Stern put that in there. Like, like I don't actually think right. he I mean, has I, a real to politics. Me, like, to me, one of the beautiful things about, I think particularly with like Marvel and DC type characters where you have, you know, it's this, this ongoing process of revision and the best stuff will definitely be, you know, it's the writer and artist like speaking for themselves, you know? So like, it's funny you mentioned the Captain America, like that was looking at this, uh, old daredevil written by Anne Nocenti uh near the end of her run in the i think probably the late 80s early 90s and she has like captain america as a guest star in this issue and like this is like an incredibly super lefty version of captain america and it's definitely not the captain america that a lot of other people would have written but i really appreciate that like there's a flexibility that you know people can just put their put their own voice in so i think the idea of seeing these things as immutable is like really contrary to the whole appeal of the form yeah or just thinking these things like real people and well i I don't know i feel like a lot of people think of this stuff as real um people like you said like like immutable and like that's something that somebody just added to the character late in the game is secretly what this character really was all the t- all this time. So people will like like the whole Magneto thing. People will be like, "Oh yeah, you know, Magneto is was always like an antihero or a good guy. He's Jewish. He was a concentration camp, and you know, whereas to me, I'll be like, okay, Chris Claremont tried something, and it was interesting, and I like the Chris Claremont Magneto, but I don't actually read the Jack Kirby Stan Lee Magneto and. Th- and think, wow, isn't it crazy that he was secretly a Jewish guy all this time? I think, okay, this guy basically is a Nazi. Like, you know, yeah, th- I mean, this like, is a different guy. This a, is a different that guy. is like a completely two dimensional villain through like the yeah. Silver Age, where it's like, and it's it's just how most things were. Like that, like I mean, part of the that Chris Claremont making Magneto a Jewish man and giving him that that backstory, and then kind of putting him on this road to being a more heroic character. Like that's all like innovation that's being put into the thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's also something that's now just kind of, uh, you know, 
fairly commonplace. And I think especially as like, you know, a company like Marvel where they realize like, oh man, Venom is really popular. I guess we should make Venom more of a hero now, which kind of like, you know, but look, all these sort of things where it's like, you know, I think you have, like, it's the, the, the problem of like, well, everyone likes our villain, though, you know, to do a story, to have them be a protagonist, they have to be, you know, a protagonist. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, um, I think it's something else too, is a lot of people, I think, care less about, like, I feel like there was a, a shift and it almost made a hundred and eight. A 360 degree shift, as in it went back to where it started, is when you used to read like old golden age comics. I used to read a lot of reprints and stuff. You would see no names to the writers and the artists. And even like if you see them in a trade paperback collection, a lot of times DC or Marvel had no idea who did the golden age or Marvel age comic. Like they had to kind of guess sometimes between ghost artists, between, um, you know, whatever, lack of credits and stuff. So people, I think, used to kind of really think that um, they didn't know who was writing this stuff or if there was a name on it, it would just say Bob Kane and the guy wasn't yeah. doing doing any of it. Then there was... Kind of like a newspaper comic strip. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You just kind of just sign your name to it and you've got like so many ghosts and studio people working on it. And I think like from the 60s to the 80s was like the peak Maybe to the 90s, you know, with the old image people, that was like the peak of knowing and caring about who was doing your comics. Uh, you know, people followed writers around, people followed um, artists around, and people noticed when artists left or came and stuff. And I think now we're in this un- this new era of like corporatism and, um, you know, people loving brands and and, and intellectual property, you know, more than caring who does it, where we've kind of almost gone back to that old thing where all the credits are there or whatever, but people kind of really don't really care that much. Like, people don't really care if the person who directs the next Doctor Strange movie is the same one who directed the first one. Like, I think they care about the actors. Yeah, they do. And I think the actors are maybe like the new equivalent to being into the artists. But even the actors, like, Okay, maybe they care about the actor as the character, but even then, like, for example, when Chris Evans does something that's not Captain America, people aren't following him. Right. It's not like that old kind of movie stardom where, like, oh, can this person open a movie? Like, these people are very much tied to those characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. unless, Unless they already had some degree of movie stardom. Like, it's like a Scarlett Johansson, for example. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, but like Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, and all these people. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. maybe maybe to a degree as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's just been around for so long. Like or like Benedict Cumberbatch, I think has his own kind of stardom. But yeah, yeah. Wait, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's sure. it's crazy now because you, you talk about those movies and you realize like. <laughs> like the number of actors you could just name off the top of your head like like more and more and more of them are just going to be like in one of these movies even if like it's just like you know a little bit you know even like even like robert redford's in one of those movies you know yeah yeah exactly exactly kurt russell's in one of those movies 
Yeah, and and if it's not that, it's one of the DC ones or any other ones, or like, or maybe they got into a Star War instead. You know, it's like this is just like the gravy train that all the actors are. They kind of either have to be like, okay, fine, or it's what they actually aspire to. I think more. I think certainly like the the, the people who are like coming into acting now, this like would be the gold ring to get like one of these kind of uh roles we get to be you know because they're, they're, they're gonna start doing like the the disney x-men movies and like the, i feel like that must be the gravy train everyone wants to everyone wants to get in on i mean i, I look at even robert downey jr if i think about it if i think about it what is he really doing outside of big ip like like when i think about it he's that i know of he's done dr lou little that didn't work and he did the sherlock movies the Sherlock Holmes oh, yeah, both movies. Are like big bombs I think the Sherlock Holmes movie at, at least the first one did good enough to get a sequel so I'm guessing at least yeah. that, I don't know I, I don't know I'm this... the do little one because that one was like oh, that, that one definitely a bombed. huge bomb yeah that one was a huge bomb but when I think about it I'm not sure if even he can carry movies without IP anymore so yeah. I really wonder to I mean, he wasn't really a guy who before Iron Man was known to be like a guy that you put in a leading role that's true that's fair he had yeah. some, but they were never like you know. But yeah, he. I think he just more had the clout of having been like in movies a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because when I think about it, he didn't. Have, yeah, you're right. Uh, but I mean, I was thinking like, what is the movie I most associate with him aside from like Iron Man and all that? Is like probably less than zero. Less than zero, and another one which I think was a flop, but I just personally like it because <laughs> I saw it when I was a kid. Was uh, the pickup artist? Those oh, I've never seen two. that. Was him and Molly Ringwald. Uh, you're not missing anything. It's not worth tracking down. But uh, yeah, it was him and Molly Ringwald, and he was like uh, this kind of pickup artist. It was in the '80s, and uh, it was a comedy. And honestly, I can't remember much about it except Molly Ringwald was in it. Whoa, whoa! Remember. So I have a question for you. Um, like one of the things I like a lot about your show is I feel like you do a lot of good, you know, kind of uh, media cr- criticism. I'm kind of curious, like what your relationship with music media has been like, like over the years and also kind of like now. You know, it's crazy. I used to be really, really into music. Uh, that's why I said I used to um, uh, read Flux blog. There were a couple of blogs in the 2000s uh, that I used to read. It's interesting because I can't remember the name of a lot of them. Um, I used to have them in my Google Reader, and I would uh, always find out what you know new bands were coming out, what... Uh, new hipster bands were happening and all that stuff and who was doing shows i would do um there wasn't one called i think it was um pukekos i think was one of them um there were there were there were like a, there were like a there were like, there's a whole like universe of them for a while yeah there was like a whole a, like, now i feel like now i feel like i'm like one of like the last remaining you know <laughs> like, this is like a, this dinosaur but yeah yeah, like I just went to um, Pukekos, for example, and the last post was uh, October 20th, uh, 2000, you know, and, and even then it's kind of like uh, sporadic, like 
like they go like months without posting. But it was a time where you used to. Uh, I think I think the death of Google Reader I think did a lot to hurt uh, that and the rise of Twitter. Like I always say, I feel like we made a bad deal in that uh, we gave up blogs way too fast before we really realized how awful Twitter was. And I, yeah, I really, absolutely. Oh, it was such a bad deal. Like I, I feel, I feel like there's kind of a few different things. And one of the other things that I, that's kind of uh, where I really veer into like, is this like, how, like how much of this is just me being bitter, you know, but I really feel like, and I feel like maybe this is starting to change a little bit in the more recent past with things like Patreon, but I feel like people, especially writers, do not look at things that are done like independently or non-commercially as being legitimate anymore. I think, like, there, I think especially through the past decade, there was this thing of like, you know, you either work for these crumbling media companies or, you know, you're just not legit. And I could, I've worked on like all sides of this at this point, you know, I've, I worked at Rolling Stone for like a couple of years. You know, my original job at Buzzfeed was music editor. Like I've done this, like, um, you know, both sides basically. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do feel like there, there was this whole boom of people taking independent media very seriously. And then I don't know, it's like some kind of crushing fist that kind of coincided with uh, the social media stuff. And maybe, maybe part of the social media boom was part of what made all those blogs and everything like less meaningful because it just made it so like everyone everyone's doing some version of this at once you know even if it's just like like a sentence or two at a time yeah yeah i mean um actually can you can you walk me through can you walk me through that again i want to make sure i understand the point that you're that you're making about you're saying so you're saying Walk me, walk me through. Uh, I, I, I feel like the, the people don't value independent media so much. Like the, 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 all the corporate stuff is the stuff that's taken seriously. And, you know, I, I think like maybe the, since Patreon's come around and you have like a lot of, I think especially podcasts, I think podcasts have sub- helped sub- a little bit. Sub- but then again, too. you look at you. Yeah. yeah and Substacks. I think like there, there, I think there's been a shift back towards this. But I think especially through a lot of the past decade, there's just kind of like a weird dismissiveness about yeah, yeah no. blogs and people. like it, it, I don't know. I think like part of it is it's very hard for me to separate from like my own like attachment to my own thing uh, and also feeling like, oh, man, you know, I wish, you know, the, the part of you that's like, I wish people would, you know. You know, praise me or you know, uh, or acknowledge me the way they used to. You know, but the, even because there's a thing where it's like you do a thing long enough, then people just like understandably just kind of it just kind of recedes into the background. Like I've been doing my site for 19 years as of like this week. But I think it's great that you've been doing that because I feel like way too many people just tossed it to the side to either chase like bigger you know like a lot of the old bloggers you know got co-opted by the system and started writing for places like atlantic or new york times or making their own things like box i didn't realize that like ezra klein and matt uh Iglesias. oh yeah they're og bloggers yeah like my old boss ben smith uh was og blogger oh wait, who's that i missed that name ben smith oh he's an like og he blogger was- too i didn't know that 
Yeah, yeah, he was like he he was uh that's yeah, that that we would have occasional conversations in the in the way that you would have like a, a 3 minute conversation with Ben. But that was like one of our, our our main bonding point that we were both bloggers. And and these have like blogger happy hours in different cities. It was like a whole different type of uh scene and and blog Did you did you did you ever get in on that? Were you around at that time? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a I had a blog, I had a blog called uh Johnny Triangles. I had a that like various blogs. I had one called The Rawness. I had different blogs. and But I was never, like, good at constantly keeping up with them. Like, you know, like I'm a much more consistent podcaster than I ever was a blogger. But um, Why do you think that is? Well, I feel like with blogging, at least the way I used to do it, because I used to write uh, articles, you, you're subject to, like, writer's block. Whereas I feel like with podcasting, you're really not because just having a conversation sometimes i have a really clear idea of where i want to go with a podcast but then other times i'm just like i'm just gonna wing it but there's someone else usually like for example if i had to podcast by myself and that's right oh, yeah, like, like like the things that like matt chrisman does where he just does like a monologue for an hour and i don't know how i don't know how i, I couldn't do that yeah i mean the funny thing is i do that now but um I feel like it's different because it's not a podcast, if, if that makes sense. Like, for example, I just collect a bunch of, like, articles or interesting ideas, and I just talk about them. But even then, there's, like, a chat, and I can look at the chat, and I can look at stuff. Right. But I feel like if I had to do, like, a podcast, and I'm in a room, there's no chat to go off of. There's, And I can't just uh, talk about current events. Like, I have to, like, form... Uh, um, Hmm. I kind of know what you mean because what Matt Chrisman does is is closer to what I'm talking about, and it is pretty it is pretty impressive to have a whole kind of thesis every single time and a whole kind of uh, lecture. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. to me, it's all like he reminds blog- me kind of of a preacher. He's got a kind of a preacher vibe when he do- when he when he really gets in the zone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think. Um, Smoking helps too, because it's like he's smoking a lot too, and I feel like if you do that, <laughs> that definitely, uh, definitely helps, especially if you're charismatic. You can, because a lot of times when you get high, you'll think of some crazy stuff that's like really profound. Sometimes, you know, I, I feel like pod, I feel like writing is, is I mean, especially the kind of writing you do. If you're not just doing cheap link blogging, if you actually like have, like essays you want to write i think that's pretty pretty hard but yeah and podcasting is never quite that hard to me a lot of times if you pick the right guest they'll do all the talking for you right yeah i mean mean, kind of doing this now um yeah it's it's kind of flexing different muscles i think it's not it's, it's more like adding to the thing i'm doing as opposed to this switching gears completely and you know just from different professional things i've done i've always liked interviewing people i was curious about other people's lives so i mean like especially doing this in the midst of a pandemic where if i see people i know like once a week that's really lucky so like getting a chance to talk to people i don't know uh this is like one of the few really good options yeah yeah i mean how long have you been doing the podcast um uh, I started recording episodes around October. I think I started putting them out around November. Oh, cool, cool. Like, how do you how do you like it compared to blogging? 
I, yeah, there, there's kind of different things to me. Like the, this is more, a little bit more um, involved because of all the editing, things like that. But it's just kind of a, it feels more social to me. I mean, obviously I'm talking to other people, so it is a more social thing. Um, whereas like doing the blog feels more hermetic. It's really just me like reacting to music and it's not necessarily a conversation at all. You know, there's not, there's not necessarily written to provoke a response from the audience. Like I, I only sporadically get that, which I'm fine with. Um, I wouldn't want to have people constantly, you know, I, I, I mean, you, you get that kind of response on Twitter sometimes. And, uh, you, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get a response and you'll be like, oh, not you. I don't want your response. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, well, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. You talk about relationship and music and stuff. I used to read all those music blogs, get, um, you know, those releases that, like some of them would have like, uh, touring CDs. Like, for example, there was a group I used to always see when they came to New York, um, which, which I'm sure you know, because they used to be featured on your blog. I used to really like Glass Candy, for example. And oh, yeah. every time um, they came to New York, I would come and see them. They have a different touring CD, but I would go to uh, blogs and sometimes if you couldn't make, make it see someone on tour, like a blog might have uploaded MP3s from you know, the touring CD for that group or or just hip you to a new group that you had, you never heard of before. I used to be into all that stuff, but something that's weird, and I don't know if this has happened to you at all, I have, I can't enjoy music like I used to. And I don't know if it was maybe because I was just too into it. Like, I still like it in an almost academic sense, but I mean, the way I used to listen to music all day long and always be looking for new music it's not quite the same i'm semi-curious but like for example during the pandemic i just one day just deleted my whole mp3 library i must have had like over a thousand albums i just and at first i was trying to be discriminant and just go through it and then on a whim i just deleted like all of it like no backup I got rid of all my... Was it just kind of like a fuck it, like all this, like, it'll be on streaming anyway kind of thing? Um, Kind of, but you know what was funny was I was trying to, like, pick what I wanted to keep, and I was going through this, like, meticulous process where anything that wasn't on any streaming, I was trying to keep. But if it was on streaming, I would add it to a streaming uh, library and, and things like that, and then I I just said, I just gave up and deleted everything. Then I deleted the streaming library, and I just said like I'm tired of stuff. Like I'm just tired of having a lot of books. I'm have I'm tired of like I was in this weird place where I felt like the stuff I was owning was like owning me. Like yeah, kind of a kind of a kind of sort of a metaphorical weight. Yeah, yeah. Even if it was in a in a cloud, like I just. Because then I'd be thinking, am I? I have all these, all this, these MP3s. Am I listening to them? Stuff feeling like homework, like you know, um, you know, am I watching my Netflix queue? Uh, am I looking at what's on my DVR? So then I just got, ri- like, I, I made friends with somebody, and uh, this person saw my Netflix queue, 
And they're like, oh, my God, why do you have so many things? And I'm like, well, I just have a lot of cues for everything. I just, you know, I never really thought about it, you know, but I just always... I just, oh, so, like, mm-hmm. so you, you, so that's kind of how you engage with the thing. Is that I mean when you're stuck with a Netflix queue? Like, I never, it never even occurred to me that, that the thing that I could set up. Oh, so, so you don't have a Netflix queue? No, I mean, I have the, I mean, I have a Netflix and I have a few other streaming services, and I just kind of like jump in, but I don't really. I think like the Criterion Channel, I, I, I had that for a while. I, I, I changed TVs, and I, I can't use it anymore. But like that, I had some kind of like wish list thing going on. But yeah, I just didn't because I don't really have like a I think I, I kind of approach TV in the sort of improvisational way where it's like I don't really make plans around it. I don't really watch a ton of TV to begin with. Mm. Do you feel you're that way with music or are you different with music? Well, with music, it's kind of I was just thinking what you were just saying before about um, your, your the way your relationship has changed. And like, I think one of the real values of doing my site and probably why I would be very, I I just can't see myself not doing it in some way, shape or form is that it is kind of like this engine that makes me constantly engaging with new and old music. Gotcha. So yeah. So like I I don't, because I've set myself on the schedule and I've committed to the schedule (laughs) that I kind of have to like live my life, like to feed that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of keeps me engaged and interested. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that if I didn't have that, I might be more similar. Um, and I can kind of feel that sometimes when I'll just kind of get bored with a lot of things and I'll just like the things I'll, I'll, I'll want to listen to or stuff that I know that I've heard a million times or like the stuff that's just kind of like, there's like certain like artists that I can listen to that's almost kind of like a palate cleanser or just to kind of have as a default. So like, like a good example that would be like Steely Dan and Stereolab kind of both fill that niche in my life among some other things but i think them like pretty consistently in the past like four or five years like what i was doing with music i was going through this phase where i was re-listening to all my music and seeing what i wanted to keep so like like what kind of stuff was that like what were you going back to well i have a pretty uh very musical taste so it could be anything from like boom bap hip-hop to um like old country music to like blues and rhythm blues from the from the 20s you know to i mean i mean basically i think the only thing i wouldn't really wouldn't listen to is probably probably rockabilly i never liked rockabilly music. <laughs> uh yeah like but i would try anything so like i remember one time i had a bartender friend who was you know into rockabilly music and i would always ask people about their music and i'd go and try it and he told me something like Cherry Poppin' Daddies or something. And I tried it. I'm like, oh, I'm good. This is probably <laughs> one of the few musics I would n- never give a chance to. But even – oh, that that and new in new country. I don't like the new stuff that, that they make, you know, that I feel like is for – is for mall cowboys. Yeah, like the bro country stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that stuff is like horrible. But like the old uh, the old stuff like Waylon Jennings – um, George Owens, like you know, uh, Tammy Wynette, that type of stuff. I could, I could listen to a lot of old, old stuff. What was your path into that stuff? Um, initially, I'm not even sure anymore. I just always had a big, big curiosity into music, and I used to always just like listening to music. I watch a lot of old movies, and there's always a lot of songs in the soundtrack, and I would always, um, and like you know, 
I mean, there's there's so many things. Um, I'd always listen to other people's music if I went to where they lived or whatever. You know, uh, borrow people's people's music and and rip MP3 copies of it and and listen to that. So I, I I always had this thing where I was always willing to try music, and blogs were great for discovering music. I think I discovered a lot through blogs. But one real easy way to discover music for me, which seems very ancient now. But uh, things like HMV or Virgin Megastore, uh, it seems like a million years ago. Oh, the ago. listening booths, right? Yes, yes. It seems like a million years ago and so antiquated now. But I would go to listen to booths all the time. And you would just try things. And sometimes you try something and you're like, you know what? I did not think I'd like... You know, looking back in quarantine time and thinking of sharing those earphones with so many <laughs> randos it seems so gross now but i didn't even think twice about it i didn't wipe anything down just put my ears on the same thing that 50 other people put the nasty ass ears on didn't think twice about it yeah, yeah. oh man i miss it's funny because like i miss all of those kinds of stores like i mean i think the one i miss the most is other music i had a real like oh that was a great mental attachment to other music Oh, I was so but, hurt. Uh, I was so hurt when that place shut down. Oh man. Ah, oh, God. Yeah. Actually, I actually have a small cameo in the documentary about that. that I didn't find out in, about until like pretty recently. Oh, very cool. <laughs> are, are you still situated in New York? Yeah, yeah. I've I've lived in New York uh, like pretty much my whole life. I I grew up in the suburbs in the Hudson Valley, but I've been here since I, I went to college here. So. I've lived here a really long time now. There were a couple places in Brooklyn that were similar to other music, and I can't remember the name anymore. Like when I tell you, I've kind of tuned that. There was one called Earwax. Yeah, that that was was kind of on like Bedford. Yes, on Bedford. Yeah, there were a couple on Bedford. There was one in that mall on Bedford. That's a little south, like you know that same place where Verb. Yeah, yeah. Where Verb Cafe is, there was a music place in there. But yeah, Earwax was great. There was one, I don't remember if it was Earwax or not, but it was on Bedford too. I think it was close to Greenpoint. This might oh, be. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. There's like, yeah, there's there's one in Greenpoint that I liked a lot that was. Had, um, is that live performances? Wanna... Yeah, yeah. I, was, I saw a few things there. Um, God, what, are they, what was that place called? It was Permanent Records. That was the one that was on. Uh, God, it's on Franklin. And. I realized like a little bit later on. So I like, that was like, I, so I, I spent like about like seven or eight years in Queens. And then I've spent the past, I guess, nine or t- 10 years in Brooklyn and uh, park slope. But there was uh like, pr- I realized like uh, that that store permanent records had moved into this weird little office park thing. Um, not even office park. That's not the right term for it. It's like, like a weird like shared office space that was in sunset park and look they're not there anymore but i I visited that place a few times there and that's really some of the weirder record store experiences ever had because you had to like go through other people's offices to get to this record store yeah yeah i I remember the other place um besides earwax and and the one that i can't remember the name of there used to be so many. Yeah, yeah, there used to be a lot. There's a rough trade. So rough, rough trade was the one that I think I was thinking of as well. Uh, rough oh, trade yeah. had performances there, but they also sold uh, 
Records, and I think I saw like Dizzy Rascal and some other people there. It was that that's that store is closing soon. Oh wow, yeah. I, I'm surprised it wasn't. I, I mean, I guess I, my understanding is they're relocating. They're still they're still going to be a Rough Trade record store somewhere in the city, but that place with the performance space is is that's that's done for. I'm, surp- I'm surprised it wasn't gone already because they've been getting rid of all those places. They've been getting rid of them all. <laughs> I think they were doing pretty well just on the live shows. And I think that this also the way that place was situated. It was basically like, like my kind of snide description of that place. It's kind of like if there was a big box store that Pitchfork curated, and it was basically the gift shop for the luxury hotels next door. And uh, I, I'm, yeah, I mean that store I, I never really cared for in terms of like actually buying music there and probably is also like they, they they had everything at like the maximum list price so it was just like definitely one of the more pricey stores you could go to yeah yeah um there was oh, there were so many good but yeah I, I mean i don't know like i i mean i guess because you have a blog it's kept you very engaged but you know what i think i um made me kind of lose interest was the 2000s when i look at all the music I collected in the 2000s when that first wave of hipsterdom um, occurred and there were so many um, bands. I used to call them the the dub bands because there was just so many oh, bands yeah. with the this, the that. And they kind of had this kind of rehashed um, late 70s, lower east side type of aesthetic to them and stuff. And I was like... Yeah. What? All, all, the, all the bands are basically riding the strokes wave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when I looked at that, I was like, God, none of this stuff lasted. Like, I have no desire to listen really to most of this stuff. Like, I was, like, I'll try to listen to, like, Postal Service. I'm like, this sounds like a Nintendo. Like, for some reason, (laughs) most of the stuff I was listening to was just um, all the stuff that predated that or things that I kind of just really, really had a, a passionate connection to. But I was like, there's so many, so much music I accumulated and bought. And listen to that uh, didn't really stand the test of time to to me, you know. Like there was so many things I would try to listen to, and I just couldn't get myself into them at at all. I feel like the way things are now with streaming sets people up to not necessarily have that experience, where you know you're kind of going out on a limb, you're buying a record. You can be disappointed by it because people can just kind of like go through Spotify. They can go through Bandcamp. They can. They, they, there's just much less asked of them, much less commitment. And I think, you know, people don't wouldn't feel as burned by like going out on a limb on something because you're just like flicking through a thing and it either clicks with you or not. And I think more and more things are kind of set up to be pretty disposable and not necessarily in a way that's disappointing to people. But you used to have you used to, used to have to have some kind of patience too, like because okay, like I'd come home with an album and I had the album, and then you would sit at home and listen to the album, and then to change the album took a little bit of work. You had to like you know pop something open, take something out, put it back into its case or into its uh, CD holder, and pick something else. So a lot of times, just out of inertia, you would just sit through the whole album. You might skip 
songs if the songs were bad enough but for the most part you just sat through an album and you used to learn your albums inside and out so i will say like i would bring home um an album and i would you know and you said go out with your cd man you know your discman <laughs> you know so you had to pick your two or three albums that you went out with and you would just basically listen to your albums like nonstop. Yeah, you, you had to really commit yeah, yeah, you have to really commit. Whereas now, even when a new album comes out that people are hyping, even when I'm listening to it, I'm like surfing Spotify just to look at what else is is out there. And sometimes I don't make it to the end of the album. I get distracted by something else before I even before I even get there. You know, or yeah. I, I think the, especially if you look at things on thing on uh, social media, you'll get these things now where people will be often like you know like not not like wrongly like very excited about something and that'll have that'll kind of like people people's going crazy for like one thing for like a week or two and then it's just like it never happened ever yep yep and and, and also like I, you understand why because from for myself for example I don't ever re-listen to an album because there's just a million other things out there in the clouds and the um, in the streaming space that you know the, the sensation of getting to the end of an album and going back to the beginning and listening to it again. It almost feels like this endless homework out there. Um, I think maybe streaming is what kind of um, ruined mu- music. I think the combination of streaming and also the idea that. Um, one thing streaming caused me to do is not listen to a lot of my old music anymore because it was sitting on my hard drive or whatever. And I'm always like searching for albums that I don't own already. And what else can I discover? Uh, either new or old, you know? Um, but then even when I looked at my library, was trying to play old music, I found, wow, a lot of this old music, I have no desire to listen to anymore. Like so much of it is from that 2000, 2010 era where None of this stood the test of time, uh, to me at least. Like some of it, like I remember realizing that um, LCD sound system. I still like those albums a lot. I I was surprised how well those um, held up, you know. But there were a lot of other albums that, um, you know, I, I'd come across something like like the Vines, and I listened to that. I'm like, uh, I don't feel like listening to this. What, what is your relationship with stuff that you were really into in the '80s and '90s like now? Oh, that stuff has held up pretty well i don't know if the music was different or if maybe because i was younger i heard some theories say that the uh stuff from when you were like in high school and college and younger is the stuff that stays with you the most so maybe it was not even the quality of the music but just my age but even when i talk to people who were younger than me who that would be the 2000 stuff for them i don't really see a lot of people saying oh man i really remember the, the vines i like i like i love the vines or the Von Bondies, I really um, <laughs> want to re-listen to. the Von Bondies in a long time. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I feel like when I was going through my stuff, I was just like, how did I forget all this music? And when I My d- main association with that band is like Jack White beating the hell out of that guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that became like the, the claim to fame. The music wasn't bad either. It was good music. It's just, for some reason, it didn't really stick with me. I don't know.
yeah, but yeah, getting punched by Jack White was the guy's biggest. Um, but you know what? Even like the, the White Stripes, I feel like most people mostly remember Seven Nation Army. Like I don't feel like people really talk about White Stripes albums and like the favorite White Stripes album replaying it. It's just like I don't, I don't know if that's true for the White Stripes. I think White Stripes definitely has like a pretty like because people who are into White Stripes are like way into White Stripes for the most part. Like a, like a cult following, you would say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a cult following band. Where that I think, I like the, the, I feel like the worst thing that can happen to artists, like regardless of like what their success level at the time was, is like if people just don't, if you don't really have like your own little cult, that's usually like that's that's the way you disappear. Yeah, but I feel like very few of them rose beyond like cult status. Like like they were big enough that I think they should be. Or, or maybe maybe the the phrase I should have used is, is fandom. Yeah, but where people where people have like you know that's like I always think about this thing where it's like I don't know like I I've never I I mean I've made music but I'm not a musician but I feel like if I was going to you know commit to something like that I feel like the goal would be like I would like to be some people's favorite band you know yeah but no you know, that feels like a good goal but nobody coming out of two thousand nobody coming out of the two thousands to me. Uh, nobody coming out of the two thousands to me is carrying a U a U two audience. It may be Coldplay, maybe I don't know. But was Coldplay even after? Yeah, Coldplay for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I feel like you know, like like um, a YouTube or a, I mean, sorry, a YouTube, a YouTube or a Springsteen type of following. Like the biggest band was the Strokes, and even they, I don't think, were uh. I mean, the band from that period of time that really was angling for that kind of like U2 Springsteen thing was Arcade Fire. And I feel like mm, they, like they, especially on that the last record or so, I'm, I'm kind of constantly fascinated by the failure of their last record. Because um, I feel like they failed in so many ways and so many interesting ways. And um, it's just crazy to me. So, I mean, this, how much do you know about that last Arcade Fire record? I don't even know what the last Arcade Fire record was. It was called It was called Everything Now. It came out in 2017. And like one of the things that's fascinating about it is it's very much made for a world where Hillary Clinton won the presidential election. Oh, wow. Uh, the last one I tried yeah, from them was... Clearly in, the lyrical, in a lyrical sense, is this like made for that world where all the problems that suddenly became apparent... Like that, the biggest problems in the world of that Arcade Fire record is like we have too much content. We have too many things online. There's too many TV shows now. It's like it just feels very trite. Like like no one's going to connect with that, especially in 2017 when everyone's like in like total hysteria. Yeah, everybody in the 2000s, whether in comedy or whatever, late night music, movies, has aged really cringe. I feel like. 80s and 90s people even age better than 2000s, even though it was just... I mean, the only person I think was really aged... Like almost all of those people had wilderness periods, though. Yeah. You know, everyone kind of has, like, their time where, like, they're this really fall out of spotlight. Oh, I'll also give you an example. Like, like, the one person I think who really um, has survived the best out of the 2000s is Dave Chappelle. And then he had the hugest wilderness period. I think yeah. this fact that he wasn't constantly working and, you know, he took a break probably allowed him to... Um, get the right distance and not be cringe but like uh, yeah i think there's that and also like there, there is a benefit going away you know it makes it so when you come back people are 
or have an investment in it. I think the people who yeah. can kind of fare the worst are people who are constantly making things. And I definitely relate to the people who are constantly making things, but it is a, it is a very good way to make people not care about you. Even if you're constantly good. Yeah. Like, um, the last album I heard from Arcade Fire was was uh, Reflector. So it was like I think two albums ago, and I got yeah. I like yeah it. that one's all right. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a bad the one with uh, James Murphy. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of good disco-y type of thing to it, you know that I like. But I mean, so many people from the two thousands. Like you look at like Jimmy Kimmel, and he's such like a cringy lib now, and and. Uh, Chelsea Handler is all like woke now, and is and but that horrible Gen X. I feel like Gen X does woke the most horribly because I feel like Gen Xers are doing. I don't think they fully get it. Yeah, they don't. I, they I don't fully. Not, yeah, they don't fully get because it because there because there is a Gen X version that was like the political correctness. Yeah, and it, I mean a lot of this is just like a lot of things that were from like the late eighties, early to mid nineties that really fell hard out of fashion in the late nineties. And then this slowly, gradually kind of came back. Like, I mean, I, I really feel like, like things are so cyclical that, you know, like some things will change, but like a lot of things is kind of come and go. And that's, that's definitely one of them. I think the PC version is different than the woke because the woke one. Yeah. I think is way more advanced, but I think also Gen X went through this phase where um, everything was supposed to be post-racism, post-sexism. All the isms have been gone and they still exist, but in a very degraded minor form. Like, you know, basically uh, the only real racists left are, you know, a bunch of rednecks, you know, down south, the clan, or, you know, the only sexist, the only real sexist left are, you know, some construction workers or whatever. And yeah, I mean, this is kind of the, the way, like the, like the daily show, like the, yeah. the ethos of the daily show, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then what started happening was you were free to kind of have this type of post racist, post sexist, post um, end of history. I can make fun of everybody type of liberalism. Like like that that is my uh, political correctness. Like I'm gonna bash everyone equally, even though you can't really do that because I think what the new wokeness has kind of acknowledged is that power dynamics make it so that making fun of black people and white people, gay people and straight people the same is never really the same because uh, one person is punching down and one person is uh, punching up. But you know like. I heard somebody call it the Tina Fey type of racism where it's like, this is supposed to be cool because we all know that racism is gone and we all know that I'm a liberal. And if you feel uncomfortable by my white liberal um, racist joke, then the problem is you being uptight, you know? And when you look at a lot of the stuff that Tina Fey did, she gets grief over it now or um, Jimmy Kimmel doing um, blackface or a lot of the things that Chelsea Handler says, like a lot of, of Chelsea Handler's like edgy stuff has been like scrubbed from the internet, or or like if you look at the stuff that uh, Amy Schumer used to do, where it was like, hey, you know, I'm a girl, but I'm just as nasty as the guys, so I'm gonna be even more racist than the subtle guys, or more edgy to show that you know I'm gonna burp, I'm gonna drink, you know, and I feel like those types, those Gen X people, their wokeness is really horrible because they don't really get wokeness but they are embarrassed 
about what they were before. So like Chelsea Handler, I think knows that a lot of her jokes about um, minorities and all this stuff were really bad. And she's trying to be woke, but she's just stepping on rakes. She's not doing it correctly. Uh, same with Amy Schumer. I feel Gen X wokeness is really the worst because it it fails at properly being woke because, like you said, it doesn't really get it. But um, it seems like more like damage control, as you're putting it. Yeah, it's damage control, and it feels like Steve Buscemi. You, you, see, you see, like which way the wind is blowing, and like, oh, I really have to course correct now. Yeah, you know, and, you feel, and I feel like you're studying, like you know, like okay, I, I need you kids to teach me. Uh, you know, children of the future, which is like you know, typical Gen X cowardice, like you know, to to put it to put it on kids to be the future. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, so it's like you know, you're basically following the leads of kids, and it just becomes like the political version of the Steve Buscemi meme of you know, hello fellow kids. You know, he's wearing wearing the skateboard and the backwards hat and the flannel. Like I feel like that's what they're like with their wokeness. They come in with their ideologies, like hello fellow wokes, you know, and it's like no, stop it! You're, it's not working. It's not convincing. How do you identify generationally? I identify. I identify as gen, Generation X, but like uh, younger Generation X. I feel like, I feel like generations don't really work. I feel like every generation really has two halves. Like uh, an elder millennial is very different than a, uh, you know, younger millennial. So it's um. I would say yeah. I'm I would say I'm younger I'm younger generation X. Yeah. I I I I kind of go back and forth on it cuz I feel like I'm right like on the line between these two things which itself is kind of this whole other thing. I feel like there's a there's a few years in a row people born maybe the very late 70s, very early 80s where it is kind of like this own thing and but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like what, one of the advantages of being in that kind of nebulous space where you get to kind of, you can kind of like go back and forth between the two and you can kind of know both of the cohorts pretty well. And there's there's definitely a lot of value in that. I can definitely, and I feel like a certain kinship with people who are on the other side of that divide where they're like, you know, they're the super young millennials who are bordering on the Zoomers or whatever. Like there, there's a certain tension that kind of like is on both sides of these things. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I, I think gen, I think generation is just a weird thing anyway because they're like fifteen. It's, it's 15, helpful 20- to understand like the, yeah. the, the 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 cultures of different time periods and how they kind of carry through time. But I think like that kind of generational essentialism makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense, especially because they're just too big. Like you know, f- like I have a sister seven years um, older than me, and we have a generation gap basically. Even growing up, like 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 the idea that fifteen or twenty years counts as a generation, I just think is just crazy. As someone from like the mid forties to the early sixties, are supposed to, like one predates rock and roll, the other one, um, you know is a couple of years into it and it's supposed to be the same. It's like, it's, yeah, it's a little bit too glib. And like you said, type of essentialism. So I, I always feel that, uh, and I always feel like same thing with decades, like the idea of a seventies and an eighties. And if you look, I feel like what we think of as the eighties didn't really come into formation until like 1982 and 1983. And it was really there yeah. in 1984. If you look at something, 
from 1981, it looks like what people think of as the 70s. You know what you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. The same thing is true of the the very early nineties where it's basically like the I, I've I have a real fascination with like the very late eighties and very early nineties is this kind of weird bubble uh, of culture where it's not really quite the culture of the eighties so much and it's not so much the culture that would become the nineties, but it's all but it's all also very MTV. It's definitely yeah. like the the, the, the era when MTV really fully asserts itself is this incredibly dominant force. Um, and I, I collect a lot of old magazines and I just got some, uh, a whole lot of spin magazines. I knew you were going to say that. I was just going to ask if you get spin spin. I knew yeah, you yeah. were going to say that spin is the best <laughs> old magazine. It's so good. Oh yes. Spin is amazing. Yeah. So I just got like a bunch of, uh, spin in 89, a bunch of spin in 93. Uh, like most of both of those years, mm. so I just got it off eBay. The, and do you have the do you have the it, issues? It's been so difficult to get. Like I like I I have lots of uh, old Rolling Stones. I have like I was collecting this magazine called After Hours for a while, which is kind of like a Spin was the best <laughs> mainstream magazine. You could never yes, make absolutely. a ma- you can never make a mainstream magazine that good again. Uh, do you remember? Do you have issues with the last page with this uh, artist called Sean Larson? And he had these weird. No, it was a genius lesson. Genius so, lesson. Yeah, I yes. I, I mean, I, I, had a subs- I mean, I had a subscription like all through high school and through, I think, a bit of college. So, like, yeah, that's absolutely like I had them. Like, the issues that I just got from uh, eBay were actually were all before I had a subscription. I think I start my subscription in uh, 1994. But yeah, I think that that's probably like ninety five, ninety six is when like that, that guy was doing it. Yeah, oh, I, I remember. Like, I remember finding that guy's book, which was all handwritten. Oh, he had a book. Yeah. Well, I'll find that. I don't thing. think I have it anymore. But yeah, I remember having it a while. Oh, I'm ago. sure it's out of print and probably super expensive. Super out of print. Yeah, yeah but I'll try to find it. Yeah. Oh, I, to- I think I just got it at like a like a discount bin when I found it. Yeah, he was so. He was so good. Yeah, oh, I think it was Sean Landers. I think I might. I said Larson. I think, it was, yeah. I think it was Landers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Landers. I think. Yeah. Oh God, I used to read those over and over to to death. Yeah, uh, it said '96 to 2000. Okay, wow. Yeah, that was that was a good. Yeah, Spin was a great. Like, since so you said you could you collect the old magazines, I knew you were gonna say uh, Spin because that's one I want to um, collect as well. They're so hard to come by. I was so surprised I was able because I, I would check here and there because that was like the one I wanted most because it's the one I had the most strong connection to. Um, and also it was just covering, it would just have the information that I was looking for, really. Um, they really did of, good musical criticism. Like that was, very influ- oh, yeah. that was very influential on me. Like I feel like now everything's about access. So people don't really. Um, like something that mainstream would be too concerned with access to, um, you know, ever be too harsh on something. But that was back when magazines would piss people off, and sometimes artists would stop dealing with magazines because they didn't like what what uh, a review said or didn't like how an interview came out. Whereas today, I feel like no magazine would ever even let that happen. I mean, there's like some stuff that I've seen in these issues of Spin that are just like like mind boggling. So there's one thing that really stood out that I, I put on Twitter. Cause it was just like, God, this people should take a look at this. But, uh, you know, this, you know, the pop singer Taylor Dane. Uh, Oh yeah. The really sexist, uh, 
Taylor Dane yeah. interview that was done by a female reporter. Yes, exactly. So it's uh, like where all the questions are about her body. Like the first question in the interview is just like, what would you change about your body? <laughs> Yeah. It's just like it's it like I that for sure would not be done now. The weird especially thing like, was, I mean, in, the, in the recent past anyway. The weird thing was how common that was. That was super super common to write that way. And I remember there was an issue of details that even did. Uh, this is approaching the like the year two thousand. I think it started becoming obvious how cringe it was because. Uh, by the end of two thousands, detail had a had a final page, you know, spoof s uh, spoof article, and it was all about it was all about um, a fictional female uh, star, and this person. Oh, I remember this. I vaguely remember this. Yeah, yeah I think the name the name they gave her was something called something isotherma, and this guy was just basically drooling all over the page and the profile of her, and it was very like fawning and and stupid. But also like very like sexist and everything, and yeah, that used to be a very normal way of writing, and it's so amazing to think about now. I remember there were some that were so bad that even at the time, I could tell they were bad, even though that was a norm. And the Taylor Dane one was one of them. Where I think even for the time, that one was like, oh, uh, there was one about Sarah Silverman. I remember once where they were talking about how she was such a cool thing for comedy because. Um, you could laugh, but you know, uh, you can also get a stiffy, and isn't that great? And this is like in GQ or something. Like it wasn't like uh, Playboy or something like you know, crass. It was like in details or GQ or that. That was one where I remember when I was reading it. Even at the time, I was like, okay, I think someone lost the plot here. I can't believe that actually yeah. just appeared. It's funny because like there is this whole style of writing uh, for magazines, especially through like the '90s and aughts, where there is this kind of like I don't know how to, how to even characterize that tone, but we're kind of like coming out from different angles, just the examples we just kind of listed. Uh, but I feel like looking at a lot of this writing, like my impression as a writer was. There's a lot of even it's not it's not all like cringe or bad. Some of it's just like really much more vivid writing that you than you would see now. Yeah, I feel like a lot of writing has gotten a lot more flat, a lot less voicey. And do real magazines even exist? Like, is it? I mean, it just makes me feel like, oh man, I, 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 you know, it's 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 probably time for everyone to start pushing back on voiciness. Do you feel like magazine culture even really exists anymore? Like, like, like I feel. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, yeah. like you. I mean, I think it's more in like online publications and things like that. Yeah, I feel like even when there is a magazine, it's just a token print version of a website. Like, I feel like it's really the website that's the main thing, and the magazine. Like before, when the internet first started, I felt like, like to bring it back to comics, like. Um, I feel like for most of the existence of comic book companies, the comic book was the quote-unquote real universe, and whatever adaptations were going on were like the secondary. And I think at some point it switched where, the, at least with Marvel, maybe not so much for DC because they've been um, failing out the gate a couple times. but Right, and they just rebooted constantly. Yeah, exactly. But with, with Marvel, I feel like at some point the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become the real 
Marvel Universe with a real canon and the um, a really, comics really is a good companion. example of this is uh, there's a in the current X-Men comics, there's just the idea that uh, I, it, there's a lot of explanation if you don't know what, what the current status quo of X-Men comics is. But the point is they're having like a X-Men election that all the people, all the mutants will elect who will be in the X-Men. And they made it so like, okay, now the, the audience gets to vote uh, for like one of these like 10 characters and they, they put it on Twitter and you know, the Marvel Twitter has like 10 million followers or something like that. And maybe, you know, let's say very uh, optimistically that maybe 30% of that is for people who actually read comic books. Mm. So people re- are responding to this, assuming that they were talking about the movies Oh, interesting. So yeah, this is because all these people like going crazy and like they're voting because they're 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 thinking of what will be in the movies and confused why they can't vote for like you know rogue. Yeah, I totally I totally believe that. I totally believe that would happen. And you know, to give to give the to give uh to make the connection to like magazines, I feel like when magazine culture was still a real thing, people primarily read the magazines and eventually the magazine's articles will make it take the website. Whereas now I feel like the website is, I mean, to the extent that there's still magazines with a print version, I feel like the website is the real. Yeah. From my perspective, I don't know if uh, people even have this kind of relationship with, with online magazines, even the way they did like 10 years ago. Yeah. Everything. I think especially because people get most everything as like some link in a feed. And I, I just, it's, I mean, I, this is something where I just wish I had the data or something to, to really get a informed understanding of how many people actually have like real relationships with publications relative to like the numbers of people who might read something as a one-off. Do people still have a relationship to like the New Yorker? That was one of the ones that people read. Really that one I think so, yeah. I think I think partly because I think that I know the New Yorker has like extremely high subscription uh numbers and things like that but the new yorker i think is a weird magazine in that it has a lot of uh cachet it's like definitely a kind of like an aspirational item to have yeah yeah exactly so, and it advertises you as cultured and smart in the minds yeah, of a lot i mean of people. as a new york city resident you know you can just walk around some neighborhoods and you'll just see like a whole stack of new yorkers just sitting there uh, to, to some degree, I'm guessing maybe the Sunday Times still has some of that cachet. That used to be something people used to really like to be seen reading. Like people used to go to a cafe on Sunday and sit on a chair with the Sunday uh, Times. I, I remember I said like, go to this place in Park Slope um, and you know get coffee on a Sunday morning and sit in a like like chair with my Sunday Times and and read it. And that's the thing I feel is. Is that uh, iPads? I think killed it too because people started reading magazines on iPads, and that I think the idea of not, I think there's a lot of performative aspect of public reading that e-readers and and iPads have have killed, and magazines are one of them because I feel like the New Yorker was very much as much to be seen reading as to actually read. Yeah, I mean, you definitely will see like a certain amount of. Uh, you know, it's it, it it does feel like a little disingenuous to kind of say it's all performative reading, but you know what I mean. Like you, you still see a lot of that, and you can kind of like glean sometimes through context. You know, 
how much of it is kind of performative but yeah i wouldn't go as far as say it's all performative reading but i think performative reading did play part of a role in you know the actual the actual stuff and now that's gone yeah yeah i feel feel like there's a lot of it's funny like the, the way things are performative now um the way people talk about because they have to do it kind of like on social media now and like mm. one thing that like I've been thinking about a lot in the past year or so is the way people talk about sad music now. You probably have seen some of what I'm talking about. I think especially with the people, the way we talk about Phoebe Bridgers and like, uh, it's just kind of, <laughs> it's it, it just kind of like overstating how sad some things are just in, it, to kind of amplify like their connection to the music, mm. which I don't really like. I don't feel like people are being disingenuous about liking the music, but I find like that whole thing of like having to always talk about how sad the music is and how sad you are and how like, you know, it's kind of over the top language about like, Oh, if I put this on, I'm in tears. And I don't know, maybe because I'm not super comfortable with that kind of performative sadness in any way to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know so much so much of it is weird the um i'm thinking about music again and like i used to love magazines i would get so many magazines and i would get spin i would get uh fader i would get paper but even the magazine that still exists like i tried fader a couple of years ago i don't know if i changed or it changed but it felt very dumbed down it felt different i don't well fader is a weird magazine in as much as that it's kind of it's just kind of part of an advertising company advertising pr company so was it always that like there's oh yeah oh yeah it's always been yeah and like all they would have like the fader forts at all these events and things and but yeah that's that's a uh basically a pr advertising kind of company lifestyle branding and that's kind of always been their deal and like the fader magazine the publication while i mean legit in many ways is definitely it's it is part of that machine you know it's weird even if it was that i felt i felt that it was at least kind of accurate in a way in that Specifically, like it did capture a culture, even if it wasn't an advertising thing. I think it did reflect um, a kind of edginess that now, well, I guess it goes yeah, with, they, I, they had their ear to the ground for sure. Yeah, yeah, they had their ear to the ground, even if it was, um, you know, an access magazine more than a really antagonistic magazine or whatever. Uh, they did have their ear to the ground, whereas now, when I look at it, it's like. I'm not going to discover anything in Fader. Like, like it's not a thing to look like. I'm not even young, and I could tell that it's not cool. You know? I mean, everyone's playing catch up with what's happening on the internet. I mean, that's that's one of the, the most f- sad and also interesting things about music media in the past and like the recent past, especially in the post TikTok past. 
um, where every publication is just kind of chasing the whims of teenagers they don't understand. (laughs) And the corporations are generally like several steps ahead of them in terms of gaming out uh, what the kids want or, you know, whatever. But it, it really is this thing where like all the things that used to make music publications interesting and exciting was that editorial perspective and people like trying to, you know, the, well, one, the taste of individual people, the taste of a collective of people, but then also, um, you know, yeah, it's just like there's like this kind of getting away from like that core of it and having it be more about just chasing this kind of thing that you just can't really ever catch up to. It's always going to be, especially now, it just moves way too fast to to really do it to really be on top of it without also without seeming kind of cringe and embarrassing as you're just trying to connect with kids yeah yeah it's yeah i I, I mean interesting too is there a really underground culture anyway like do kids really have an underground culture and what i mean by that is um yeah because i mean i think that's kind of what the internet is right in different, all these different ways and shapes and forms. So all these things do exist. And like, you know, it's how much of it you pay attention to. So I think one of the problems of paying attention to, uh, just how things work in social media, like the things that will be noticed are, I mean, it's, it's generally going to lean towards like pretty square people, right? Like it's because you need X number of people to be behind something. So like the, it's kind of like, I feel like the, the, the social media really makes it so it's just like the, the normies really have all the power and the people who we would have considered counterculture now or in the past rather don't have that power at all. And I also think the way the internet's set up is that um, anything that is counterculture, I mean, it would be counterculture in the past uh, becomes normie culture really quick. Because, because yeah. like what happens now, I think is very interesting. Is uh, somebody will come out and they'll you have not heard about them at all, and then for someone like Lizzo, for example, would have been like a niche act, I think, for a very long time in like the eighties or nineties or whatever. But now you have somebody who they'll meet niche or someone like Megan Thee Stallion. Megan Thee Stallion was kind of a, a local act in Houston for like a little while, and it's like people get discovered and blow up so fast because it's a culture of um, virality. Like, and with, and with virality, you can be made so much faster than you used to have. Like, even if you were a PR creation, they used to have to spend money, see, you know, uh, the magazines and the newspapers and the radio stations with mentions of you, press releases. Now, you can just be in an office and have an international network of sites and subsidiaries and whatever and and connections with other PR people at different websites. You can blow somebody up in like a week without even leaving um, your city. You know what I mean? Like it's not like before. So I think. Yeah, I think, I think we really had that like proven in the past year when people can't tour, so the mm-hmm. things will, like, will still happen. Like, uh, are you aware of that thing? It was just the oh god, what is it? The uh, the driver's license song that was like the big 
number one hit for, I think it might still be the number one hit, but it's been for a couple weeks, but it's like this kind of Disney girl who's kind of done this kind of, uh, kind of Lord meets Taylor Swift kind of, uh, power ballad. Oh, was that the thing that that they said an Asian girl actually created or something? I don't know about that, but I wouldn't be shocked. Okay. Uh, cause I saw something about, uh, this Asian girl, um, created the the driver's license um the, the driver's license thing on tiktok oh no kidding yeah i mean there's a whole mess of uh i mean tiktok is a whole just the way all of that works it just really lends itself to things being appropriate and kind of lost in the translation yeah yeah it's almost made to steal um attribution yeah, I, was, I read a really good article um, pretty recently. I think it was in Rolling Stone that it's kind of about these uh, companies that make beats for people who are like aspiring TikTok singers to jump on, and it's it's kind of a, it's a similar model to what happened with Lil Nas X, uh, where they can kind of jump on a beat, they can do it, and then if the song catches on, then they kind of swoop in to kind of basically buy this thing out from under the singer it's a really perfect scam for the sort of people who are looking for these kind of like easy hits yeah yeah and I, it sounds like kind of like what happened with panda well or at least with, with panda that song oh yeah very similar yeah i mean i think the guy paid like 25 dollars for the beat you can, you can like get beats for like super cheap on youtube and he did that and the song became a hit and i think he gave the guy more money or something down there but he didn't actually steal it but he, he just got it for like nothing and it turned out to be uh, a huge hit. I mean, I've bought beats from those like $25 beat people. Like, for example, I wrote the theme song to our, well, not wrote, well, I made the theme song to the podcast, but uh, I felt too lazy to do um, a second closing song. And I want to do, I really want to do a second closing song. And then I read about the guy on Panda bought that beat from someone. I'm like, I wonder if I could just buy a beat for $20 just to <laughs> close that the thing and i and i um sure enough i went to youtube and i entered beats for sale they just found all these beats so the the closing beat to um the closing beat to the show is that is something i bought from someone for 25 dollars and on youtube so, so now you gotta have to i guess like the worry now is if, if you if you if your audience continues to expand and you get like some of that chapo kind of money then this guy might come through and be like well it's time to pay up well you know what i don't think he will but honestly if i ever made chapo money that would be the least of my concerns he could i would <laughs> gladly cut him a, a check i wouldn't have a problem yeah <laughs> yeah like i think the net positive <laughs> i'd be like i might reach out to him <laughs> oh you know before we wrap uh-huh. up there's one bit that i just realized i had wrote i wrote down because i was just looking at your uh your twitter earlier this morning just be like oh let's see if there's anything that might be a good jump off uh and there's one thing that you were writing about uh eminem being just aging terribly oh that, yeah that resonated with me and uh, if you if you like to kind of like get into that a little bit, you know it's funny when I put that a lot of Eminem haters um, 
you know, came into my mentions. I'm like, I can't believe in this day and age, there's still this many, like, you know, I just picture like these 40 something year old guys with like uh, really, really baggy pants and the swimming on them. Like, I was trying to think, like, who is someone who would get this worked up over Eminem in like 2021? But I mean, it just, I've tried to listen to old Eminem albums and the weird voices in the background and the eh, 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 and all these like little, like, it's ages. And it's not just about youth, because some people are saying, hey, you know, he's young. What do you expect? But there were people who, there were plenty of people who made albums younger than him uh, in hip hop who. This, I mean, like Nas. Yeah, example, Nas, is, one. Nas is one. Uh, Special Ed, I think, was like 18. LL Cool J was like 16 when he started. Like, all those albums age, you know, great. Like, like I don't know what the word for it's not just that it's young, but it's a very juvenile. There's something very juvenile and the shock. Yeah, I think that's the right word. Yeah, and the shock aspect of it. You know, talking about giving wedgies to NSYNC and all this stuff. It's just to, you know, all the it, It's point. very of its moment. So, like, I mean, there, I think there's a value in being really of your moment, but that's, like, the, the risk, right? Yeah. Where it just... Like why are you like why are you mad at Moby? Yeah, so weird. <laughs> like you know, and and I think also it's of its moment in a way that hasn't aged uh, well because we're in this kind of era where, um, and we talked about this on the podcast a lot. People who listen to the podcast are probably are sick of me giving this example, but you know, I gave an example of um, this this documentary called Generation Like by PBS Frontline, where they ask a bunch of young kids. Uh, what the meaning of selling out is, and they actually don't know. And I think this is very much a true to that. Like the first wave of hipsterness was very much about, oh, I'm not mainstream, I'm not mainstream, or uh, and always uh, issuing the mainstream. Whereas now, I think it's like, hey, I'm enjoying the mainstream just as much as the normie, but I'm doing it ironically. That's the difference, you know. But it's like a or or more intelligent, yeah, or more intelligently. So it's like uh, hip, a hipster will listen to. Um, the same music that a Saturday Night Live fan will listen to, who's forty. You know, they'll both be listening to Taylor Swift. But one will, like, like you said, will be doing think pieces that really kind of overthink it. You know, the way you said is great, either ironically or more intelligently. But there is no real. Yeah, I, I think I think even more more recently, especially in the uh, economy of. Uh, content is like well i need to explain to you why this music you like is actually politically good like why it's why it's speaking to yeah. something you know, you know whatever it is you know like there's that kind of famous tweet of the, the making fun of pitchfork with the, the goop on your grinch tweet if you know that one yeah but yeah that, that's but yeah that's uh I think that's actually where bodies and spaces comes from. Oh, interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> that's my understanding well, when I was trying to figure Well, out. I know bodies, yeah. I think, came from uh, Foucault. He used to use bodies a lot. And then, but I don't know if in using it in the, a pop way came from. Oh, but, but, but just like the, 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 in the meme oh, sense. the meme so sense. Like we're doing you. bodies and spaces. Like, yeah, like that's, that's the origin. It comes from that tweet. I'm, uh, I'm, but yeah. But yeah. But again, like, yeah. So it's like, I'm doing it now. I mean, and part of that, I mean, it's kind of like it's there's kind of like two forces that come together uh, explaining why so much of music media has moved in that direction. And, and part of it is this uh, very well-meaning uh, 
taking popular music seriously and all this stuff, which, you know, I think comes out of like optimism, things like that. And which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the more bad thing is like how much of this is done to just create content because this is people only really want to read about celebrities. And that's what we, that's what people will click on. That's what people will come to the site to read. Like people don't really, you know, it's like people reading about music, people reading about lots of things. Uh, it's so much things are niche and you can't really, (laughs) you can't really scale it the way that the tech companies want things to scale. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, I feel like in, I feel like in general, there used to be, I feel like in general, there used to be this type of, um, anti-establishment strain, especially, uh, from boomers to Gen X. Like we take it for granted, but I, you know, I think it was a very short period in time. I don't think it really existed before and has existed since. But, you know, boomers, late boomers to Gen X was this thing of uh, demand, the establishment, the mainstream or, or you know, the lamestream, which I think a distinction has kind of gone. And an example is how Eminem was always making fun of NSYNC and Justin Timberlake, but um, 50 Cent the songs with Justin Timberlake, you know, like, like, but, but what 50 Cent did back in the days, if you did a song, um, those examples, like Dougie Fresh was a, you know, well-known New York, um, OG rapper. And he did a song in the nineties with hammer and people got so mad at him and called, accused him of selling out and going mainstream. He had to actually apologize to his fan base and leave hammer's label. Like, like he joined hammer's label and he had to be, you would think he molested a kid or something, the way he gave his a, apology, like a, and, you know, went in public. He was like, yeah, I don't know what happened. I apologize to my fans. Like, they acted like he did something, like, so morally wrong. Whereas now, like, that doesn't happen. You're supposed to do songs with the biggest, yeah. hottest person. You almost get looked down on if you don't. So, yeah, if you don't get that. Yeah. So, so like, Migos. I feel like the, the core of this is like that cohort like is invested in coolness in a way that subsequent generations like they interpret coolness in a completely different yeah, way. Exactly. Coolness is because I think because of the internet and virality, nothing is cooler than having eyeballs of being the most seen person. So if you if you um are with the person, if you're getting a bigger platform that automatically makes you cool now, whereas before I felt like, you know, I think something about keeping your integrity and staying small was, uh, you know, cooler. So it's like Migos does a song with Katy Perry, you know, and it's like back in the days if like Run DMC did a song with Tiffany or Debbie Gibson or where or, or Madonna, it would just be like, OK, this person is not mainstream. They've lost all their street cred. Yeah. Migos lost no street cred from being with Katy Perry on Saturday Night Live stage. It's just like, wow, they're validated. They they came from the hood to um, Saturday Night Live, like more power to them. So I think that's another way that, em- em- right? Because they've never been a guest in their own right, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's another way that Eminem's album ages weird. Because I think that's another way, like you look at it, and it's not just juvenile, but I think people wouldn't even say like, "Hey, why are you making fun of the people that are big?" Yeah, you won't even get it. There's a kind of a weird like circus energy to a lot of that music. That's a great way to put it. It is. It is. It feels so cartoony and silly in a way that 
I don't know. It's just, it, I don't think any, I, I don't, I wouldn't put it past people to eventually feel more nostalgic for it, especially people who really grew up on that. Oh. Like Eminem hits like when I'm, I'm probably like 18 or 19 and like, I'm like, I, it just didn't connect with me at all. You know, the peak um, circus Eminem is, you know, that song just lose it. Like, ar, 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 like that's very, very circusy. <laughs> That's, I think that's probably like 2002, 2003, something like that. So yeah. It's a little ways in. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's like he's chasing that energy in that one. Yeah, uh, exactly. He's really trying hard to have a new, um, my name is or, uh, without me. Like at, at that point, that's the stick now. The first single has to be something cartoony and circusy. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. almost self parody. Oh, and angry. There's, there definitely was a pattern. Yeah, yeah, but no, it ages uh, really bad, especially because he's already too old to be that emo and cartoony to begin with, even at that. Because I think when he... How old was he when he when that first big record came out? Probably like in his mid to late 20s? I feel like he was closer to late 20s because he was grinding for for a while. Um, he was born He was born in 72, so he was already like 32 when um, Just Loser came out. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he was older than people thought because he had been grinding for for a while. Yeah, I mean it's 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 funny because like he, he I mean we're saying before like having like these kind of like devoted cult fans, these fandoms things, and Eminem absolutely has that because like even pretty super deep into his career, he still has like these records that sell like or, or stream huge numbers. So people are obviously very devoted to Eminem. Oh, yeah, very devoted. But, and you know, you know yeah. something else that happens to Eminem, too, is that when I put that tweet up, a lot of people were trying to sell me this as, you know, a defense of him goes, yeah, you know, well, you can say what you want, but without him, hip-hop wouldn't be as big as it was. And I, that would just, like, piss me off because I'm like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> for hip-hop was already big. I don't, I don't really see a fact in that. Was that? I mean, it's... Now, obviously, Eminem like sold humongous quantities of records, and obviously his race helped in a lot of ways. Yeah. But there's if you just take Eminem out of the history of rap, I don't think things change very no, much. No, it don't change very much. And honestly, I think any difference that he made is among people who don't really like rap, but just like Eminem. Like, there's a lot of people out there who still think rap is crap, but they like Eminem. And those are the worst hip-hop fans. Uh, like, like if that's your case for why he is necessary, then, you know, that's even worse. Because I think those people are the worst people. Because they're, the, they're the ones who only come in to jump into hip-hop conversations to say, um, Eminem's the best and everyone else sucks, you know? And I hate mumble rap. And, it, it, like... They're not contributing anything. A weird thing about Eminem's career is that even as he kind of continues to be successful, like he really exists outside of like all rap trends on any side of the culture. Yeah. It's the he really, he just makes Eminem music. And like, I mean, I feel like there's, uh, that's respectable to kind of this. Uh, he just does his thing. Fair enough. But he is kind of what I was saying where like if you take Eminem out of the history of rap, it's just like it's like there's just nothing. It's almost like it's like a, like a Jenga tower. Like it's like the whole thing just kind of stays exactly the same. But there's just a hole. There. Do you know what Eminem is? Eminem is juggalo music for non-juggalos. Like if you listen to, yeah, to it's the respectable 
juggalo. Yeah, exactly. Or I call him like a hyper lyrical juggalo. He's like, you know, if if a juggalo really, really tried to reach uh, peak lyricism, uh, you know, so so when you listen to insane clown posse music, and it's funny because you said that his music is circusy, and and I'm saying that he sounds like insane clown posse, which is you know uh, a clown is something from a circus. But uh, I discovered insane clown posse uh, late, right? And I always thought the way he had beef with them that they were some people that were so aesthetically different than them. And when I heard my first insane clown posse song, I was like, holy crap, this is that same energy Eminem has. And they're both <laughs> from Detroit. It's just that Eminem is way, way, way more lyrical. And he has some black fans and stuff. But so, yeah, I think yeah. Eminem is part of a lineage of music. And I think early Tyler, the creator and odd future, I think had very much of that uh, same um, this, this rap writer I know, um, called Odd Future um, Black Juggalos, and he got fired from Double XL for it. Uh, and, uh, it's Christ. Yeah, but but the funny thing was, I think he's been proven, I think he's been proven right. <laughs> like, like they... Uh, yeah. early- I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. funny because I feel like, all, like almost everyone involved in that, like their career has evolved in such a ways that you kind of forget like what the first few years of Odd Future was like. Yeah, and they themselves seem to be kind of embarrassed of their Eminem uh shock phase because uh now title the creator is like more trying to be woke and uh they even got into beef with eminem like kind of like this eminem is being corny and stuff and eminem got mad and for once i was on eminem's side because i was like okay you guys were clearly jocking eminem when you first came out and now even you kind of see that he's uh very uh hello fellow kids himself and you've turned on him but yeah. but yeah but you're right he had very much his type of music and even the people he inspired didn't really integrate into rap well like early odd future i don't think really meshed into what was going on into the rest of rap very well hopson is not really someone that anyone really thinks of as hip-hop proper you know yeah that is, yeah, it is a weird kind of thinking about these things where like they get so big, but they, it's you know it's kind of the thing that people would talk about that, that that movie Avatar, where it's like one of the biggest movies of all time, but has like a weirdly limited uh, cultural footprint relative to these other gigantic movies. And uh, the, the Chapo guys did a whole episode about that recently, kind of getting into it, and like I think a lot of their thesis on it was because that movie is pretty lefty in a way that. Uh, an anti-colonial in a way that a lot of these other movies that connect don't really have that kind of super overt politics to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's weird with Avatar is, you know, some movies age well and some don't, but I can't at least remember them. Like for example, I liked Eminem's music when I was younger and I um, grew to hate it after, like I can't listen to it, but I can remember you know, the song about I didn't mean to give you mushrooms or whatever. Avatar, I don't know about you. I literally cannot remember anything about that movie. I only seen it once when it first came out. I never saw it until very recently. So it might be like fresher that, to that, you because that episode I watched I watched it because I knew that they're gonna talk more about it. like let's fine, fine. I will find it because I had it's on Disney Plus. I'll I'll finally watch this movie and it just kind of washed over me. Uh so you saw it recently. So at least you might remember a little bit more, but anyone I talked to when he saw it when it just came out, 
And we all agree. I mean, I, I had a popular quiz on BuzzFeed that was basically mocking the idea <laughs> that no one remembers anything about this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But it was a huge movie. So everybody, they, you, it was almost your duty to see it. And you had to see it in the theater. And that was a movie. Right. People, and, and, and it had the upsell in it, too, because you had to watch it in 3D. You had no choice. Yep. So you had to get that. Like, yep. You had like to watch it in expensive. theater. People see it yeah. multiple times. There are people who kind of base their lives on Avatar. They dressed up like it. And they would dream about this stuff. And then no one remembers it. It has no, it's, it's the most amazing. All I remember was that there was something vaguely anti establishment or anti colonial in it. Like, you know, the guy, quote unquote, goes native. That's the only thing I, I remember. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really struck me about Avatar was really that how much of that movie was him just remaking uh, Alien. Aliens is the one he made uh, where like so much of the plot was like <laughs> doing the same moves. You know, it never occurred the to same, me. A lot of the same iconography was used, but you know, the, obviously like they're, they're very different looking movies, but you know, you know, he, he really loves a space Marine for what, for example, I never, I never knew. I never, it never occurred to me until you said it, but you're right. You're absolutely, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is very much, uh, aliens also i did not know until you just told me i had no idea i forgot that he did aliens because i know ridley scott did the first one i didn't realize he did aliens yeah aliens is the movie by him that i like a lot um i'm not really like a big like action movie kind of person but i do like the alien and alien and aliens a lot yeah yeah i I totally f- forgot that Ridley Scott didn't do, didn't do the second ones. Didn't do the second one. Yeah, he didn't come back until like those recent movies, like the prequel things that are not very good. Yeah, a lot of people keep saying that. So that's so disappointing when they keep bringing people back. I know. I know with the um, Terminator, there's that disappointing thing too, where everyone thought so much. As soon as I heard David Goyer is what they were bringing, I said, "I oh, forget it. I don't think it's gonna be good." <laughs> but I thought it would at least be a hit, even if it wasn't good. But I think a lot of these things, uh, when when they bring back these these properties that are like pretty old, and they just kind of expect everyone to know what it is, I think like one of the advantages of like a lot of like the Star Wars, the Marvel stuff, all because the, there's those things are kind of like more omnipresent in culture. Yeah. There's never really been point in history where you couldn't just like at bare minimum get a comic book or a video game or something. Yeah, but a lot of these kind of things that they bring back like do not have that kind of constant presence and you can't like i don't know how they expect people to be like th- they made like another charlie's angels movie like a year or two back and it did terribly and you would see people be like oh it's because the, you know people don't want to see women like no it's because people don't know the fuck charlie's angels is Lucy But 
But I, I think also, to be fair, I think that's part of it. You're absolutely right. People know what Charlie's Angels is because rerun markets are dead now. There's too much content out there. No oh, one yeah. has to. You used to have to watch reruns because from 9 a.m. to um, 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., except for except for daytime talk shows and soap operas, you had no choice but to watch reruns. You had to kill your time with reruns until new content came on in prime time. That time is dead now. You can, between binging and streaming and all this stuff, you can fill yourself yeah. with new content. So, yeah, I agree with you, but... but well, there are things that people do watch reruns of. Like, there's that whole phenomenon of people watching Friends in the Office over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's true. But... It's hard to understand, like, why particular shows will have that thing happen, but most don't. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But also, even then, it's very much a curated choice. As before, you were kind of stuck with the reruns they chose to show you. So if at 5 o'clock it was different strokes on, on one channel and on another channel it was uh, Gilligan's Island, like, you know, or, or Brady Bunch, you had these kind of built-in things. So... Everybody grew up on Three's Company reruns, uh, Brady Bunch reruns, uh, Gilligan's Island. So they were able to kind of remake those things. But like even the- then, other things like like because there would always be like the Cosby Show and Cheers and stuff yeah. like that too. I always appreciate Cheers and Seinfeld with being like 11 p.m. Uh, WPIS. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, Seinfeld is a great one. Frasier. But now, when people have the choice, even with the reruns, people might be like, I only want to watch this rerun. You know, I'm not going to be savvy on five or six reruns. Uh, I have my choice. This is what I like. I'm going to binge. So then, uh, whereas before, you had right. one... This is like, I've seen a lot of people say like, "Oh, this is my tenth rewatch of this show." Like, yeah, or, or, or like before, like say even if I I really liked, I used to really really like um, different strokes and stuff, but I only had one chance a day to watch it with a rerun. Whereas now, uh, if today's technology existed back then, I could have came home from school and watched five hours of different strokes if I wanted to, and by doing that, I would not have been aware of so many other shows. I could have really falling down that uh so i think that's another thing that kind of hurts these reruns and stuff like in charlie's angels no one knows who it is but the other thing is too that just looked really bad that trailer was the most <laughs> uninspired i have no who was even in was that Chris, version it was Kristen Stewart call? and two people that nobody Bobby. knew whereas the the drew barrymore version i i think at least looked fun like i could see someone who, who never heard yeah. of charlie's I mean, and drew barrymore and, and uh Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu were like really big stars. Yeah, they were they were big stars, but also the trailer looked fun enough that I could see someone who didn't even know what it was about because Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu were in it and Drew Barrymore and they had this dancing and these cool kung fu scenes. I could see and Bernie Mac. I could see someone who didn't even know what Charles Angels was being interested in that. Whereas that new one, I cannot see someone first off i can't see someone who's into charlie's angels wanting to see that and i can't see someone who's not into charlie's angels being excited by that trailer there's like nothing really um yeah it's just but the ip is still there you know it's i feel like that's the that's the worst of all worlds where you're appealing to neither new people or the old people so like what this is every every bad decision yeah made. yeah for sure uh last thing last thing i would say uh because i was gonna go, go grab some food but you said something that i thought was pretty um 
good about you know these shows that come back. I think another thing is that's different now. People, for some reason, used to be so afraid of... People used to be so afraid of getting typecast. People would be so afraid of being being labeled and all that stuff. So people would leave franchises at their peak all the time, especially because that was the time of the big star and you could, you know... Also, like, the, the idea that, like, being on TV was, like, really much lesser than being on movies so like a good example would be like a shelly long oh yeah leaving cheers to become a star it doesn't happen cheers moves on without her for like at least and gets better and more years. popular if anything but but i mean i mean even with yes, even with movies better. look at vin diesel yeah triple x he's like uh eh, i'm good i'm gonna become um you know the next sean penn i don't need this uh hey what about pitch dark oh i'm not gonna do it again uh fast and the furious uh, I'm good. Like, like he left stuff on the table. Current Vin Diesel, he will. Isn't Vin Diesel like still in the the Fast? Oh well, yeah, he is. But that's what I'm saying. Current Vin Diesel in this climate will milk every single thing he's in. He won't turn anything down. He's brought back Triple X. He brought back Pitch Dark. He does any Fast and Furious movie that he can. Like, he's kind of given up that thing. He's like, look. All that young hubris I had about I'm too good for these franchise movies. Uh, so th- I think that's kind of the problem is back then people used to th- be like, hey, I'm going to become a star. And once I'm a star, I don't need this franchise. I don't want to be typecast. So Arnold Schwarzenegger leaves. The most extreme mm-hmm. example of this has been like uh, Harrison Ford going back to all of his famous characters methodically over the past like seven oh, years yeah. or so. Yeah. But. I mean, the difference between Harrison Ford and Vin Diesel is like, what, f- like 30 years or 40 years? Like, Harrison Ford is a pretty old guy. And, like, it's much more easy to understand why he would eventually be like, well, well, fuck well, it. well for Vin Diesel's thing, I just think he realized, A, his career never blew up like he wanted to. Like, he thought he was going to become like a serious actor and it never happened. But, other thing I think he realized is no one's career is like that anymore. None of these people who blew up off of Marvel believe that their name is going to carry a movie. They're all fine with, I'm just going to milk this Marvel thing as much as I can. Whereas I think in the old days, you would have had a bunch of big departures uh, by now. They- oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I guess you kind of got that with Robert Downey Jr., but that's after he had made like 10 yeah, movies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I suspect he's kind of mostly retired. Like, like he didn't leave it to do a bunch of other stuff. I think he's kind of semi-retired and will occasionally come out for um you know an odd movie here or there but yeah i feel like he's not you know but yeah he did like 10 movies you know and and the rest of them don't really seem to be in in a rush to go anywhere yeah i mean i I imagine like like some of these people will have like you know because you never know where things go with actors like people have like really weird second and third acts in these kind of careers but yeah, it it is a thing where it's like uh, I mean, just even the the whole thing of movie stars, the they they don't really quite exist the way they used to. Like celebrities really exist, you know. That's that's a whole slightly different thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do exist, but yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, I bet you a lot of people don't know Chris Hemsworth's name. I suspect. Yeah, just call him Thor. Thor. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I think Scarlett Johansson is at the tail end of of that, where her and Robert Downey came in as people's names that like they knew. But yeah, a lot of these other people. Crit- yeah, I, th- I think the more like mid, like if they get like the actors like deeper into their careers, I think especially when they 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 do the casting more to be like, uh, you know, they're reaching for credibility in some ways. Like like obviously like no one's gonna consider like. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson to be exclusively associated with his yeah, Marvel exactly. character. Exactly. He's almost like a character himself at this point. Yeah. I mean, God, you just think of like the sheer number of like, fa- like classic movies that like, one guy is. Yeah, but I mean, like when you look at who he plays, like uh, it's always kind of the same. T- yeah, he, I mean, he was not necessarily afraid yeah, of the yeah, casting. Yeah, he plays really himself. Like Nick Fury it. is him. Like, you know, basically, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that version of Nick Fury was like created in comics to because like they wanted it to be Samuel L. Jackson. It's a, it's a really weird story. How yeah, I can't believe that worked. But yeah, Mark Miller is a very cynical, cynical guy. He's yes. so cynical. <laughs> the, the, the most cynical writer in yeah, the game. And you know, it's funny. He tried to do that with Wanted and Eminem and then it backfired and Eminem threatened to sue him. <laughs> he, he, in the comic, he, uh, thought lightning could strike twice and he wanted uh wanted to be a franchise that eminem uh starred in so he made the character clearly eminem then he started doing his usual thing of seeding he would exceed rumors that he started himself about yeah you know we're talking to so-and-so and and this person might star in it and it it, it worked with sam jackson he tried it with eminem and tried to make it seem like this is gonna become a movie with eminem man uh (laughs) i think eminem's people like threatened to sue him and he has to like uh publicly say oh yeah yeah that, that wasn't that wasn't a thing i have such mixed feelings about mark miller because like there's all these like incredibly cringe things about him but on the other hand like he's like the one guy who is going out of his way to have like all these artists like do these creator own things that he could like spin through hollywood and it's basically the one way a lot of these artists get like really paid for once in yeah their lives. yeah it's kind of weird like he turned the very yeah. cynical horrible business model in into um a mixed kind of good retirement plan for lots of these yeah people, yeah so creatively know, i think it's horrible wow. but you're right like it um it does fix a lot of bad things about the comics industry i hate they had to do such a bad thing I, I, mean, I mean he took something that was crass and crude and commercial and um pulled the good out of it you know uh, i haven't tried any of his uh current creator stuff own stuff and i don't know um I read the one he did like, so he now just publishes directly via Netflix because he has a whole deal. So the comics are actually published really? by Netflix. Where do you read them? Uh, yeah. Oh, you just buy them. There's comics. Oh, books, oh so, you know? so they're physical like comic books, but Netflix is the publisher. Yes. I mean, yeah. Th- like it, with like in uh, coordination with Miller. Oh, and World, is the idea know? that they're going to become uh, Netflix properties. Yes. Yes. So everything that they that they make will is going to be a TV show on Netflix. God, that's so point. him. That's so, such a deal he would make. Oh God! Yeah. So the the one that I read was the Magic Order. I read it when the paperback came out, and that's with uh, Olivier Coipel, who yeah, I like a lot. Artist. And yeah, it's really fantastic guy. Uh, and that was kind of like mediocre. <laughs> it was super mediocre. It was basically, uh, you know. 
it's kind of like his riff on Harry Potter, I guess. But like they're all like adults and they're all like, you know, it's, it's edgy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, it looked good. Yeah. I mean, he can be entertaining, but he his comic stuff ages like Eminem stuff to me. Like it's very... Yeah, oh, yeah, it's very uh, juvenile and crass. Um, when I try to read it now, it ages so badly, uh, so badly. Just, just getting a certain kind of boy, boy riled up. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, how can people find the show? Just to let people give the sure, whole sure, sure, sure. Get this here's the best thing you can do. I hope you didn't mind hearing us talk about our uh, weird, obscure <laughs> hobbies all this time. But if you want to hear more, even more of this stuff, go to champagnesharks.com and those are all the links to like, you know, different places you could find us like on YouTube is youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks. If you prefer Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash champagne sharks. And that's where you do like the live stream, more topical stuff. The regular podcast, you can find anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So just enter it into your iTunes or your Stitcher or Overcast or whatever the word champagne sharks. That's different than the um live streams the live streams are more topical current event stuff and the podcast is more big ideas and and that type of stuff and yeah i would say that's basically it last thing patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks you get lots of bonus episodes and even more stuff so but of course the links to all of those is at champagne sharks.com that's a one-stop shopping to find this all right Thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah, thanks, really thanks for uh, having me. It was a good time. And yeah, I look forward to uh, returning the favor sometime.